1: Is most definitely all about the heart. When we talk about the things that matter most in our lives and the things or people or situations that bring the most happiness, time and time again we answer, my family my relationships, my connections. But what happens when the very people we love are the ones that are the most difficult to manage? That's what we're talking about today. We're talking with Eric Mazel about his new book, Overcoming Your Difficult Family, eight skills for thriving in any family situation. Eric Maisel, PhD, is a retired family therapist, an active life coach, and the author of more than 50 books, including his latest, Overcoming Your Difficult Family. He has been quoted or featured in a variety of publications, including Martha Stewart Living, Redbook, Glamour, Men's Health, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Self. He resides in the Bay Area, and I'm delighted to welcome him back on the show. Hi, Eric.
2: Hi, Lisa. Great to be back with you.
1: Oh, a real joy. So let's talk about family dynamics. Why can they be so complicated? What's the story?
2: Well, there's a lot to say there, isn't there? Well, let's start with a place that psychology ignores, and that's the idea of original personality. I have a simple little model of personality that we're all made up of three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And what this means to me, and I think it's true, anybody who's had kittens or puppies or kids, I think knows that every creature comes into the world already himself or itself or herself. As I say, psychology pays no attention to that. It acts like everybody starts out from the same place and develops or undevelops, but that just isn't true. We're all already somebody, which means that family members, you you too, but your family members each may have come into the world a little sadder than the next person, a little more anxious than the next person, a little more prone to addiction than the next person. That is, they're already on their own journey from birth, and so even as much as they might love it to be part of a happy family, they still have to deal with their own original personality first, and most people don't have uh, good ways of dealing with that personality so that's one, one of the many kinds of tensions in family life that we could talk about.
1: And and then the go on and, and, and list the other two personalities, because I think this is fascinating.
2: Yeah, the second I call formed personality. That's, that's the personality that accretes over time. That's sort of our cemented personality, our repetitious personality. And then the third I call available personality. It's really kind of an existential concept. It's the freedom that remains, the freedom that remains for us to be the person we would actually like to be. And I, I kind of hold that as an amount that changes over time. If you're, if you're currently an addict running around town looking for a fix, I don't think you have a lot of available personality <laughs> available, you yeah. know. But then if from one day to the next, you know, you run your car into a tree, you hit bottom, you you, you go into AA or NA, I think on, the, on that very next day, there's more of you available to do the hard work of becoming the person you want to be. So those are the three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And and in my model, original personality isn't so important in one sense, because I think, first of all, it's hard to know who we came into the world being. I think what's most important is available personality. That is our freedom that allows us to be the person we would actually like to be right now.
1: And that, uh, and the available personality is uh, a huge component of choice, right? What are we willing to give or share of ourselves?
2: Yeah, and the less that we're consciously making choices, the, the more that means that we don't have much personality available. It means that we're coming from our repetitive formed place, the place that just does things over and over again. We know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But that's what human beings do. They do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results.
1: When we talk about the original personality, what I like in your description is that, you know, each of us is born, we come into the world, and the character personality that we arrive with is the byproduct of several things, right? It's part DNA, part perhaps even the dynamic in the family home during the pregnancy i mean we have no way of really knowing but then Absolutely. we come into the world and each each sibling each person within that family dynamic is subjected to the same setup
2: exactly and um i'm not a, an occultist or someone like that but i i actually really believe in mystery and i think it's really mysterious how each creature is already itself when that creature comes into the world. I don't think we know anything about that. To be sure, there's some things we could say about DNA and what goes on in the womb and what have you, but I think there's stuff beyond that (laughs) that's mysterious. Um, We just were blessed with new twin granddaughters who are now one-year-old in a day or two. Oh, wow. And one came out of the womb, um, a Buddha girl, Pensive, stoic, observant, and the other has got so much chi, so much light. She's running everywhere. They're just different people, and they're going to be—they're going to be different. They're already different people, and they already know each other's personalities at one year old. And and they're going to be together for a long time, being different people.
1: You know, it's funny you mentioned that about the, your twin grandchildren, and also about siblings. Is that? The relationship that we have with our siblings is the longest enduring bloodline relationship that we will have. It's not our parents.
2: One of the the hardest, it turns out. I've been really surprised. I've done maybe, I would say, 30 or so interviews in, in support of this book so far. And every single host has wanted to bring up their siblings and their rupture or break with one or more siblings So there's something about the. I think there's something really underexplored about the difficulty of sibling relationships. We know something about sibling abuse and and how siblings fight when their parents get old, and then then there are decisions around who's going to have to take care of the aging parents. There are some dynamics that we have looked at a bit, but the basic dynamic of how difficult sibling relationships are is really underexplored.
1: Well, I'm happy to say that I, I have three siblings, so there are four of us, and I love them. I and mean, everybody in my family is crazy as a loon, right? I mean, we're all like a perfectly dysfunctional, happy Jewish family. So we're loud, we argue, we're psychologically minded, and everybody is in the healing arts. So it makes for a good time.
2: Yeah, and so, so it sounds like if, if I'm correct in, in my vision of what's going on, it sounds like you're the exception. <laughs> yeah. People, and I think the rule looks to be um, that, that siblings don't get along very well. That that does look to be the rule. Just parenthetically, if, if the question arises, uh, am, I, am I overstating how difficult families are? Well, if you just think of the following statistics, that half of all marriages end in divorce and three-quarters of all second marriages and third marriages end in divorce – and there's got to be another sizable percentage that ought to end in divorce where people stay together for the, the sake of the kids or for financial reasons or for cultural reasons. We're looking at maybe 60 70 80% of all marriages being unhappy, basically. And that's got to affect everybody in the family, not just that dyad. So I really don't think we're overstating things when we paint a picture of family life being really pretty difficult.
1: That I do agree that the family life is is very challenging. I see that um, part of the challenge comes from the dynamic between parent and child, you know, um, accepting the growth or transition from the relationship being one of parent to child to being perhaps two parents that come together and share that relationship in a very, very different way, although one of them is a grown child. Does that make sense?
2: It does. And um, I started out in, in my own crazy Jewish family, but only until <laughs> I was five years old, there was an extended family. But then my mom and I moved out to Brooklyn from the Bronx uh, when I was about five or so. And then I had a very quiet time thereafter with just my mom. I loved it. I loved the quietness of it. But I noticed it, among all my friends that when dad came home at five or six or whenever dad came home, all hell would break loose that kind of everyday tyranny that, I don't know, dads of that time, but I think maybe dads of all time, and I don't mean to just single out dads, but just there was something about coming home from work and sort of banging around the house and, you know, getting the TV on and needing dinner and needing the kids to be quiet and and all of that dictatorial stuff that I was so pleased not to experience. I suspect that still goes on, and I suspect that's still a dynamic between parents and kids that uh, kids have trouble surviving.
1: Even adult children, you know, often I hear, children. yeah, the, 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 right. the dynamic is very, very challenging when you've got a 50 some odd year old child and a 70 or 80 some odd year old parent that the um, the roles still stick. And I guess that's what really intrigues me about your book is what skills and or tools can we use to survive a difficult family dynamic, whether it's our parent with our parents or siblings or cousins or what have you.
2: Yeah, let me go to that, but just before I go there, I just want to say one thing about this particular moment in our history, and that's the divisions over politics in families. Oh, yeah. I'm not even going to say any more than that, but if if there are psychological dynamics between parents and kids and among family members, there are also these um, really... um, edgy and dramatic political differences among people right at the split second that's causing all kinds of ruptures and fights and and hatred among family members. Oh, good. Well, listen. we're,
1: we're going to have to jump off to a break. So it's actually a good time to, to segue to that, because I, 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 I have experienced that in my family, um, this election where from out of left field, we had some fence jumpers. And that really was surprising and really caused a lot of uh, consternation and really hard discussions. So maybe we can just touch upon that. Um, sure. When we come back and then and then continue on with some some tools to, you know, help us help ourselves, Eric, please. <laughs> <Yeah. Yep. laughs> but listen, let's go to the break and let me give um, the contact information. The book that we're talking about today is Overcoming Your Difficult Family, Eight Skills for Thriving in Any. Family situation. To learn more about Eric Mazel and his work, please visit www.ericmazel.com. You can find him on Twitter at Eric Mazel and on Facebook, Eric.Mazel. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. That's a promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to share a little retail happiness with you from Fab Fit Fun, a seasonal subscription service that delivers joy in a box containing full-sized beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. 4 times a year, Fab Fit Fun will indulge you with top-notch curated products from great luxury brands like Moroccan Oil, Dermalogica, Juice Beauty, Triniturk, million more. Fab Fit Fun boxes cost $49.99 and always contain more than $200 worth of pampering. Quantities are limited and seasonal selections are always a sellout. This is a great way to treat yourself to the most amazing products of the season. Check out www.fab fitfun.com and use the promo code happiness at checkout to save ten dollars off your first box once again that's fabfitfun.com and don't forget the promo code happiness now here come the tunes we'll be right back
0: and that's a promise we know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough, having too many responsibilities, not having enough money, enough time, enough space. The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us
1: now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal. And we're talking with Eric Mizell about how to overcome your difficult family, how to manage the relationship dy- dynamic with those that you love and are most challenged by. Before the break, we began to talk about the recent election, which has really splayed many families. Um, and Eric, you, you, you brought this up, and I think it is so appropriate. And I I have experienced this in my own family. So talk a little bit about this, if you would, how to manage.
2: Well, it just seems to run super deep, doesn't it? And the divisions seem um, insurmountable, and maybe they are insurmountable. I mean, one of the tasks of a human being is sometimes to understand that some grieving is necessary and we have to separate ourselves from family members because we really just can't deal with them. Even if we, in in some sense, really love them, it may be impossible to deal with them in moments like this. I think of the Civil War as another moment, brother against brother. Civilization may be just a very thin veneer over some very powerful impulses in us, and this election has certainly brought up some of those impulses.
1: Well, I think For me, and I'm speaking personally from my own experience, that the challenge became rather than being upset, and I was very upset because I'm like, can't you see, can't you see, but, 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 trying to really get the other person to sell them on my position. And then I took a step back and realized that, you know what, really my only job in this relationship is to love this person.
2: It's it's interesting. I'm going to go to a, a really big parentheses here. Um, okay please (laughs) i believe that there's no purpose to life that is there's nothing outside of us that stands as the purpose for life rather there are our there are our life purpose choices and if we don't make life purpose choices we don't actually have life purposes what that means to me is that everybody has multiple things that are important to them and they might be contradictory things and what we're talking about speaks to that that is Let's say you create your life purpose menu and on it are relationships and activism and creativity and service and whatever else is important to you. Well, to live your life purposes of relationships and to live your life purposes of activism, one might be confronting the other. So it may be that you're going to be an activist for whatever political side you're on, but still let that not be part of your family relationship because One of your life purposes is to have a loving, secure, and decent family relationship. So the whole matter of life purpose choosing, I think, is very intricate, and most people don't spend any particular time really thinking through what's important to them or how they're going to get their life purposes onto their everyday to-do list.
1: This is a brilliant point, you know, and I think it asks the question: um, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy?
2: Yeah, and also, do you want to be smart? Uh, I mean, I guess that's in a way the same thing as happy. But, you know, lots, again, I'm going to go to a parenthesis here, but often when we try to meet our meaning needs, for me, meaning is a certain kind of psychological experience that, that we want and that we crave and that we can influence. It's not something to seek, not at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet. It's an experience we can create. Well, sometimes the things we do to experience meaning meaning. Don't feel meaningful in the doing. For instance, if you're an activist and your job this week is to lick envelopes, the whole week may be boring to you, yet you know why you're doing it. If you're a novelist and you're working on your novel, you may hate your novel every day this week and not experience any meaning as you're writing it, and yet you still know why this is a meaningful activity to you. This is a very mature attitude about life, to understand that the things that can provoke the psychological experience of meaning don't necessarily feel meaningful in the doing. And so many things in family life are like that. Something as trivial as laundry or doing the dishes or what have you, they don't feel necessarily meaningful in the doing, but because this is one of our life purpose choices, one of the ways we make meaning, having a family, then we do them more gracefully rather than less gracefully.
1: I think this brings up a really good point. Um when, when we talk about the mundane or feeling as though we're struggling with our relationships, and we're doing it anyway. Um, the, for me, the question uh, that I like to ask of myself is like, what am I really trying to get to right when I when I do laundry, which is one of my favorite mundane tasks on the planet, for several reasons, it's completely mindful and then when I'm folding that laundry I'm in each of those creases showing a little love to the person whose clothes that I'm folding so that's a that's a choice that I've made that's but right. doing doing laundry most of us would say is a real like three times nothing right
2: exactly and I, I think what we're saying speaks to how everyday activities can be taken one way or another way one of the skills and I haven't mentioned but there are eight skills that i um, teach in the book, and just another parenthesis, I don't expect anybody to actually learn eight skills. That's beyond <laughs> human endurance. But I think they're interesting, <laughs> and were, were were a person to try to practice one or another of them, that would improve their lives. But one of the eight skills is, is the skill of presence, and I think that's what we're talking about here. And for me, there are two kinds of presence. One is sort of the Buddhist idea of when you peel a potato, you peel a potato. But I've been working with creative performing artists for 30-plus years, and there's another sense of presence where when you peel a potato, you're also thinking about your novel. And that, to me, is another kind of presence that's relatively unexamined but very important for a creative person's life. Agatha Christie said that every one of her plots for her mystery novels came to her as she was doing the dishes. For Grant Wood, the, uh, the painter, all of his imagery came to him as he milked the cows. There's something about doing these tasks that can be, I don't want to use the word used exactly, but that can be used in a certain way to provoke a certain kind of quietness in us where ideas then percolate up. So for a creative person, there's something about folding the laundry that can be not just loving in the way you describe, but also a really fertile activity for creativity.
1: Yeah, it, I, it, well, it's a place to just zone and allow the juices to flow. I can definitely see that. And I can see how that skill can also be up, applied to the engagement with the challenging family member as well.
2: Yeah, because often uh, you know people are sort of just moving at cross purposes in life. And if you're worried about your son's drinking and he comes in the room, you may leave the room because you don't want to have that hard conversation that you know you ought to have it's very hard to be present there to his being when you know that what what ought to happen next is a conversation that you don't really feel equal to. So that's another sense in which we need presence, and that's the presence to stay put in the vicinity of our family members if there's something going on that we need to do. And just on a very practical level, one of the skills that I teach in the book and that I teach clients is if you have something you need to say, say it in seven words or fewer with a real period at the end because most people start attaching commas and clauses and start half apologizing and half taking the sting out of what they're saying and giving the other person the opportunity to wiggle out of the situation, etc. So it's a, just a great practice to say utterances, sentences of seven words or fewer and would, li- would sound like, that's not okay with a real period. If somebody is doing something, that's not okay, that's the way to say it. That's not okay with a real period. And most people are not trained in speaking that way and feel really uncomfortable speaking that strongly.
1: Well, when we think about our emotional intelligence levels as human beings, yes, we're all intellectually, you know, bright enough to, to do our lives, but we're not necessarily emotionally aware of this inner life and even what our feelings are. I mean, this is another big challenge that sometimes these relationships become so difficult because we're not even sure what we're feeling when we're in them.
2: That's right. And that's why some of the skills I'll just run through the skills. First. Please. Yes. The first is smart. The second is strength. Third is calmness. The fourth is clarity. And fifth is awareness. And that's exactly what we've just been talking about. Clarity and awareness. The sixth is courage. That is finding the courage to have that hard conversation with any family member. And the reason that's so hard to do is there are consequences. If we have that conversation with our son, he may storm out. We may not see him for a week. Or, you know, if we have that conversation with our husband, we may be down the road of a divorce. So we understand that there are consequences. And that's why it's so fearful to have these conversations. The seventh skill is presence. and, And the last is resilience and just to speak to that one for a split second, as you said about siblings, we're with them forever. We're sort of born together and we sort of end together. And all our whole life, we're dealing with these same dynamics with siblings, which means that there's no way to get something done just once. We have to keep, <laughs> we have to keep doing the right thing that we're trying to do, and, and it takes a lot of resilience. It's also a lot of strength to, to keep trying to do the right, to, to just keep doing the next right thing.
1: You know what? As you were speaking, what comes to mind is the relationship itself as being becoming a practice. You know that we we practice, we continually practice doing our best to communicate better with that person that we care about, without necessarily needing to agree or to be right. And I think therein lies a certain challenge, but ultimately the reward I think can be there.
2: Yeah, and practice brings to mind a really important word, and I I have clients rehearse the interactions that they want to try out in real life, and that's a certain kind of practice too. And I I find that folks can very easily not only figure out their part of the conversation, but they they know what the other person is going to say. They've been dealing with this person so long that they can do both parts of that conversation. And so they can really refine what they want to say based on what the other person is saying in this mind rehearsal. And then come to, this is just like an actor learning his lines. It's the same idea of be prepared. It reduces our anxiety levels to be prepared. And so by rehearsing these difficult conversations that we know we need to have, we can come to them more strongly and less anxiously.
1: We are nearly out of time, and I wanted to recap those eight points, the eight skills that you've written about in overcoming your difficult family, eight skills for thriving in any family situation. Eric, would you be so kind as to repeat them?
2: Sure. The first one is smarts. So that's just uh, understanding smartly what's going on. The second is strength. We have to manifest our strength all through life, but especially in family relationships calmness, we need to reduce our anxiety, clarity, we want to be able to see clearly what's going on around us, including whether we're safe or not, which is a big point that we won't quite get to, awareness, courage, presence, and resilience.
1: Wow. I highly recommend the book to everybody. To learn more, please visit Eric Maisel at ericmazel.com. On Twitter, you can connect with him at ericmazel, and on Facebook, Eric dot mazel as always it's a pleasure come back and hang out with me anytime eric i i I love speaking with you
2: great i'd love to come back
1: all
0: right we'll do that here comes the break we'll be right back nothing gives happiness like a free gift unwrap your present by signing up for happiness headlines our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com stay tuned for more after the break One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio.
1: If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7 on demand. And we are talking about demanding and difficult people that we know in love. My next guest, Sarah, or Sam Elliston, is an expert in the art of dealing with difficult people. She is a top workshop leader and a member of the faculty of the William Glasser Institute which espouses reality therapy to foster behavioral change. Her instructional career began long after she even became aware that she herself was a difficult person, traits that began in Lincoln, Massachusetts, where she grew up. For more than 30 years, Sam Elliston has been teaching and training, first as a high school teacher in Ohio, and then as an administrator at the not-for-profit, in the not-for-profit sector. Elliston holds a BA in International Relations, from the University of Maine, and a Master of Arts in Teaching from Brown University. She also has a very long-standing career with the United Way's Volunteer Center, coordinating volunteers for all sorts of uh, sectors. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, well, this, this is going to be great fun. Okay, so are you a reformed a difficult person, or did you still have those traits hiding? I don't think they ever go away completely, but I'd like to think
3: that I'm a lot better than I used to be. I have a, a great story. This is my little success story of the week. Last week when I went to choir practice, I was running a little bit late, and I noticed I'd gotten food on my shirt, so I quickly threw on a sort of a big, galumpy sweater that didn't didn't really matter what it looked like. And I went to choir practice, and we sang, and we had a great time. And then afterwards, I was talking to the choir director, and I began to realize that all the women in the choir were kind of around me, behind me, and they were pulling on my sweater. And it sounded like a lot of little birds, you know, they were talking about my sweater. And finally, I turned and I said, "What's what's going on?" And they said, "Your sweater's on inside out." And I laughed and said, "Well, I'm among friends, you know." (laughs) Right. Not going to break any social rules, shall I? Shall I turn it inside, you know, right side out? And then we all laughed about that. That sounds so small and insignificant. But as as recently as three years ago, I might have said to them, "Well, what's it to you? It's my sweater." You know, oh, that yeah. that kind of uh, defensive, always expecting someone to be attacking me, so you better defend right away. I don't. I don't do it any. I'd like to think I don't do it anymore. Sometimes the thought goes through my head, but this particular evening, I just laughed and actually went into the ladies' room and changed the sweater and came out and said, oh, look, it's all right. And we laughed, walked to the car. Driving home, I thought, you know, that's different. That is a different behavior. So that's my success story based, you know, compared to someone who went through life arguing with almost everybody (laughs) or coming when someone pointed something out, be having a defensive reaction all the time. Um, It's it's I'm happy about that.
1: Well, I I am happy for you because (laughs) you do not sound like a snark mistress to me. I mean, you sound like such a nice person and that's what makes me so interested in your book and in your reformation process. You know how do you identify difficult people and and identify ways that you we not you we can speak with them that um does not incite drama yeah well, that's the whole purpose of the book, but the uh one of the things that I like to
3: quote in terms of looking at people and are they difficult or not, most of us know. If someone's difficult, we all have at least one person we'd sort of cheerfully like to strangle if we could just because they're so annoying. But some of the habits of a difficult person are criticizing, blaming, complaining, nagging, threatening, punishing, bargaining and bribing. Uh, Those are what Dr. William Glasser of the Glasser Institute, in reality therapy, he calls those the toxic habits. Yeah. And I, I think those are those are pretty obviously the kinds of things that um, difficult people do. And as I said, I when I look back at my life, I realized I kind of went through with my, you know, how you hold your hands up when you're boxing. I think my I took on the world that way. I'm not sure everybody saw that because I present myself as being, you know, confident and. Educated and intelligent and responsive, and I can be nice, you know <laughs> so, clearly <laughs> so so uh, I think it might have it surprised some people when I would become defensive or angry or critical or blaming, um, and I honestly for me i didn 't know I was uh, difficult until I was fifty. Um, I had a boss that I really respected. And she was praising the work that I was doing. And then she said, by the way, you know, you have this annoying little habit of of sort of getting into these little tantrums. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, never mind. I'll, I'll tell you the next time it happens. And so she pointed out to me two weeks later that I was stomping around the office, lifting up books, dropping them, opening drawers, slamming them, you know, muttering to myself. And we were in a, oh, if you took a good-sized living room and put four or five cubicles in there, that's that's about – we were pretty tightly packed. And uh, it was pretty annoying to um, my co- coworkers, and I didn't even notice. She called me in her office and said, Sam, what you're doing right now, that has to stop. Uh, the, and I said, what am I doing? And so she literally described my behavior to me, and I said, oh, and she said, we can't get our work done. There's this there's this atmosphere of tension and we can't make phone calls. And, you know, I was stunned. I didn't realize I was doing it. And I had no idea that anyone was paying any attention to what I was doing anyway. Because I was sort of trapped in my little world. And I've had folks say to me, oh, well, you just had an anger management problem. But it really was much greater than that. I, I literally didn't know that people were paying attention to me. And... When I observed my mother having the same kind of a little temper tantrum a couple of weeks later, um, I thought, aha, that's where I learned it. And where I <laughs> went
0: from, then,
1: <laughs> it's always I, the mother.
0: <laughs> well,
3: it was she never did it outside the house. This was the kind of thing that she just did with her daughters or her family. And, um, I missed that little message that you're not allowed to do this or it's not appropriate to do it outside the house. And if, if she taught me that I missed it. And <clears throat> so I think when I felt comfortable with people, I thought being honest was showing how much anger you have or what, or complaining or when people say, well, what do you think of that person really saying what I really thought of them, which was you no know, as germane and is no polite anyway. So what I discovered was that as I started to to look at how I was impacting other people, I began to realize they perceived me very differently. So part of what I learned was difficult people probably don't know what they're doing. They don't know how they're impacting other people and they aren't aware how other people perceive them. However, If we have difficult people in our lives, we kind of like don't want to go near them. We don't want to talk to them because we're pretty sure they're going to get defensive and argumentative and angry. So the whole book is about how to look at them, get concrete and specific about what exactly they're saying and what they're doing. And then looking at yourself to get clear on why it's annoying you, and whether it's it's a pure thing or whether they just remind you of your your second grade teacher that who was mean to you, in which case you can let go of it and, and let them be who they are.
1: Well, it's interesting that you you say this because there are difficult people in all of our lives. We all we all recognize that person or those few people, and in my experience, um, what. I observe to happen is that everybody around that person develops a methodology of communication that I call the, you know, the walking on eggshell process, yes, yes. which, you know, you keep everything really neutral because you don't want to incite them. And that takes a lot of energy and also, um, disconnects us from the very thing that we want out of our relationships, you know, from the leaning in from the intimacy totally. Yes. and, um, it gyps everybody out of a really good experience. And uh, people are always asking me um, on these radio
3: interviews, well, what did it feel like to be difficult? And I don't think I was aware of being difficult, but I sure was aware of being distanced and not having as the kind of close intimacy with others that I wanted or that I thought I had. And then I realized that they had that with, you know, other friends, especially out different work sites where I thought oh, we're pals, we're getting along. And then I realized they were going to lunch with somebody else or I'd find out that they'd done things in the evening with someone else who also worked there. And I think, oh, I guess I'm really not, as friends with
1: them as I thought I was Sam, so we're going to def- need to take def- a break sorry to interrupt you, we're going to need to jump off for a couple of minutes and take a break and when we return we'll carry on the conversation with Sarah Sam Elliston and her book Lessons from a Difficult Person, How to Deal with People Like Us. You can learn more by going to www.sarahellistinconsulting.com On Twitter the handle is at Maine Sam and Maine is as in the state and on Facebook you can find Sarah at Elliston. And here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just
1: joining us now, we are talking about handling and dealing with difficult people. I know everybody out there listening has at least one in his or her life, and I'm talking with the fabulous Sarah or Sam Elliston about her new book, Lessons from a Difficult Person, How to Deal with People Like Us. So, Sam, before the break, you had mentioned that, interestingly, the difficult person does not recognize that he or she is difficult but does recognize that they are not having those kinds of you know, warm and fuzzy relationships with others and don't know why. Or they've given up or they think that everybody is mean
3: to them. You know, who knows all the different conclusions that they might have, but I'm, I'm quite certain that there is, they sense a distance. And I think they're probably unhappy whether they know it or not. I mean, people may not acknowledge that. Um, it's interesting because when we observe or we live with and we work with a difficult person, it starts to feel like it's deliberate. You know, like that person is always doing that and they do it just to get my goat or because they're mean or whatever. And we we ascribe a lot of motivations to why someone is difficult. And the first step in, in learning to... To communicate with a difficult person is to let go of all that. And so when I do workshops in this area and in the book, I have some exercises around how can you describe the exact behavior without putting the negative twist on it? So if someone is interrupting you all the time, how can you make that? How can you look at that as a positive thing? a positive behavior it simply say perhaps oh this person is really interested in what i have to say they're so eager that they can't wait for my answer now uh-huh. that may or may not be true <laughs> but if that's just an example of you know we think someone is a manipulator well that person really knows what they want they really know what they want you to do or how they want it to come out so they're very clear as opposed to they may be a manipulator, but it doesn't help us ever communicate with them or or have a conversation with them if we look at them through those um, judgment lenses, if you want to call them that. Um, I uh, I like to always quote Dale Carnegie, says it isn't what you have or who you are or where you are or what you're doing that makes you happy or unhappy, it's what you think about it. So, if you can change, start the process of changing how you think about the difficult person, that's the first step. And the other, the book is full of, of different activities for you to do once you've clarified what the behavior is. This is the other piece. First of all, you take the emotion out of it. And the second one is what exactly, what words are the, is the person using and what actions? is the person doing? Because ironically, if you put thinking and feeling and doing all together as behaviors, we know what we think and we know what we feel. And we're always trying to change how we think or change how we feel. But doing is part of that. And we're often unaware of our actions and our words. And those are the easiest to change. Yeah. I mean, you, you spend three weeks trying to tell yourself whatever whatever mantra or meditative you know words that you're using for 3 weeks to change a thought or a feeling if you change the way you put your shoes on you know instead of putting one on first change it and put the other one on first do that for a week and you'll start to look at the world differently when you change what you do then you change how you view what you what, how you look at the world, and your thoughts and your feelings will come along so the first part of the beginning is getting really clear on what the person's saying and what they're doing because you want to work up to having a conversation where you can explain to them that they're, <laughs> this is what you see them doing, this is the impact it has on you, on the team, on the family, on customer, whatever the approach is, and then you ask. Do you know you're doing this? Are you aware it has this impact? Is that what you want? So you're not telling them to change. You're presenting the information and asking them if that's what
1: they want. That's funny. It it brings a story to mind of somebody in my family who shall remain nameless because they do (laughs) listen to this podcast occasionally. Um, This person was on vacation in Bora Bora and was texting me from Bora Bora about some minutiae about another family member who who also shall remain nameless. And finally, I said, do you know that you're micromanaging? And do you also know, are you aware that if you're texting me from Bora Bora, you're not savoring being in Bora Bora? I never heard from the person again. Ever? Well, no, it, while just... they were on vacation. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it, it was one of those moments. And this person is known to be difficult in, in the family dynamic, and it just made me chuckle, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly.
3: But instead of saying to her, for Pete's sake, start enjoying your vacation, you asked a question. And actually, you, you were looking for some of the tools. That's one of the tools that I encourage people to use. Although when you ask the question if that person had been standing next to you, they might have snarled at you, might have reacted in a negative way. So we also, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure there no, would have been steam coming out
1: of the ears. They
3: didn't answer you after that, or at least they didn't complain anymore. That solved the problem too. But um, so so the book includes the whole process of listening to someone and actively listening to whatever the feeling is that you um, might perceive is underneath their reaction. So. Uh, I've got examples in there, exercises. Uh, I have some dialogues of, of how a conversation might go. Um, but you were, you were asking about incentives and I honestly believe that the, the strongest need that every human has is to belong and be connected. Just what you were saying at the beginning of the show, when somebody takes the time to sit down with you and say, did you know you were doing this? Do you know it's a problem? You know, we value you, we want you around, and are you aware it's having this impact? Is that what you want? That actually is uh, uh, a caring kind of thing to do, even though they might not perceive it at first. Yes. (laughs) So um, that's, that's the incentive is to, in all that you're doing with them, to be building a relationship rather than tearing it down.
1: Yeah. And, and this is a hard conversation for some people to initiate. You oh, know, when you have the um, the minimizer, the arguer, the shusher, the interrupter. I mean, there are a whole host of, of descriptors of these kinds of people. But I, what I heard you say is um, a couple of things that are really important. One is reframing the language or reframing how you interpret those kinds of behaviors, um, take the,
3: stop interpreting completely.
1: Yes. To stop interpret or stop interpreting, take the, take the emotion, our personal emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, what you're talking about is that the emotion, uh, will follow the action. So you say that thinking, feeling and doing equals the behavior, but once we change the action, the emotion, and hopefully the outcome will change. What about, um, creating a bigger or greater sense of belonging with the person. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to give a couple more tips because this is great stuff. Well, in addition to the
3: toxic habits that I mentioned at the beginning that the difficult people usually do, Dr. Glasser also has seven caring habits. So if you can practice these with your difficult person, supporting, encouraging, listening, accepting, <laughs> it's always hard, uh, yeah. trusting, respecting, and negotiating differences. If you really can hold to those as as much as possible, you will have a better relationship, and that is part of what will meet their need for belonging. the The reason I wrote the book is because I realized so many people didn't come right out and say it to me. And when I started looking at all the weird things that people did thinking that they were telling me that I was difficult. Um, but it took, you know, 50 years before someone actually said it to me in a way that I heard. That's why I wrote the book.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's courageous of the person that I, uh, it sounds like carefrontationally <laughs> told you, I mean, right. Or no, or was she just blunt? Well,
3: oh, she was, she was fairly blunt, but we already had a really good relationship. So yeah. I, I was, and, we, we both were very, are very direct. And so she didn't hurt my feelings in any way. I was like, Oh, I didn't know I was doing that. And I certainly didn't know it was bothering you. Um, there was something I was going to say, I've lost it.
1: Oh, well, hopefully it'll come back. (laughs) What about, what about, um, neutralizing our own triggers? Because we get set off with these yeah. people, you know, I mean, it, we're, we're humans, you know, nobody's perfect in their in their communication style. Um, and we get set off because the, we then begin to feel minimized or or as, as my, my son likes to call it, but hurt, you know, yeah. when they when they behave There's badly. A lot of exercises in the book to do just that.
3: Um, so that you can listen without taking it personally, I encourage people to practice, <laughs> practice having the conversation. So with someone else, uh, actually, there's an exercise where you make a list of all the things that the person's going to say that you think they might say in reaction to you, and then on the other side of the page, you make a list of all the things you might say to them that will continue the conversation. It's not an easy conversation, but if the person, difficult person. Uh, is important to you as someone that you who if they have the skills you want or um, you know they play a role in your life that you want to keep them there i encourage you to work up to having the conversation
1: you know this is great advice and 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 we do love and care for these people in our lives that's why why they are in the orbit so we have to find some way to communicate and these are great tips the book once again by sarah or sam elliston is Lessons from a Difficult Person, How to Deal with People Like Us. You can learn more at her website, SarahElliston.com. On Twitter, the handle is at Maine sam and Maine as in the state. And on Facebook, I have Sarah.Elliston, but there may be another secret page. Sarah, what- <laughs>
3: Well, there's Sarah Elliston author that will get you to the, uh, the, the page about the book. that's a way to get a message to me or if you do go to my website sarahelliston.com and sarah has an h uh and if you sign up for my email um, then uh you'll receive some pages from the workshop that will help you get started in the exercises so thanks a lot for having me here
1: oh my gosh thanks for coming and and giving us such great tips to deal with the uh cranky and difficult people in our (laughs) lives and to also you know take a look at ourselves and how we can be better in our communication style, not just with difficult people, but with everybody, because the goal is is connection, right? We We yeah. need to belong. If that's what happiness is, and I think it is. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Eric Mazel and Sam Alliston. wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.